Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Miss Phoebe Griffith. Phoebe, welcome Hi. to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to join you today. And quick background on Phoebe. She is a PhD researcher with the University of Oxford and the Zoolog London Zoological Society. And her she's currently doing conservation ecology research with the Garials in Nepal. So and she's also a National Ge Geographic Explorer. So that's the first for the show. Oh, how exciting. Makes me sound much more important than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phoebe, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. So, Phoebe, mind telling us a little bit about yourself, how you first got started into reptiles? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I've always been, yeah, completely fascinated um, by sort of reptiles and amphibians um, and I actually grew up in Nepal and so was completely obsessed with uh, crocodiles and gurriels um, so we used to go down to the south of the country and I just used to sit for like eight hours straight watching crocodiles doing nothing which I thought was very exciting um, and so I yeah always just thought that um, reptiles in general were hugely fascinating but a particular love of um crocodiles and also sharks but i discovered at a young age i got seasick so that was the end of my thought of working on them um and then i yeah i did a kind of straightforward went to uni and studied biology uh, followed by wild animal biology um when i was very lucky to meet a um a, a conservationist who'd been advising on um programs of gurriel um uh, gurriel conservation in Nepal and India um, and that was kind of my first connection um, and yeah that was it after that I've never looked back since all right so uh with the your current work at the University of Oxford and the London Zoological Society as I mentioned before you're doing research with uh, the gharial populations in India so you mind give us a brief overview of what that all entails yeah for sure so um so I'm primarily based in Chitwan National Park in Nepal, where the government of Nepal in the 70s set up a gorial conservation program um, in response to having seen the wild populations just completely collapse. Um, and so this was started up by uh, the late Dr. Tieta Manmeske, who's a bit of a hero of mine. Um, and so they set up this program and they started collecting all the nests from the wild and releasing gurriel uh, back into the wild after spending sort of four to five years in a breeding center when they were at a much larger size and they weren't going to get eaten by predators. Um, and this program is still ongoing, um, but the population had not really increased between the late 70s and about 2006. Um, and then had slowly seen some increases since then. But there were still a lot of questions remaining about um, why exactly, despite this sort of intensive conservation investment um, and program, the numbers hadn't really increased and the population definitely hasn't recovered to those kind of levels that were seen in the 50s or earlier. Um, and so Basically, I'm very lucky. I'm just one person in the project. Um, I collaborate with a number of other organisations. So the rest of the team at the Zoological Society London ZSL, um, the Chitwan National Park and the National Trust for Nature Conservation and uh, Himalayan Nature. And basically kind of working together, we came up with this sort of set of questions asking what was happening. You know, we, were, we thought, well, what's happening to these animals after they're released from captivity? Um, 
in the kind of short term, are they surviving? And in the longer term, we're saying, well, if they were released from captivity, are they growing into adults that kind of nest and breed normally? Um, is, that, is that seen in these kind of adults that were originally released from captivity? Um, and try, um, oh yeah, and so, and then kind of thinking, well, there's this protected area. Our gurriel, gurriel in India have been shown to be migratory species moving, you know, over 200 kilometers in a year. Is the same, same behavior seen in Nepal? And if so, is that taking them outside of protected areas or potentially over, there's a big dam or barrage on the sort of Indo-Nepal border, uh, potentially on a one-way trip across that and they're not able to come back up. Um, so yeah, working together um, with the Chitwan National Park team, they were the kind of key questions we came up with back in 2017. Um, and then we've been trying to answer them ever since. Okay, so uh, what are some of the threats that are, and pressures that are kind of keeping gharial numbers down? Well, so it seems like initially, um, sort of populations seem to have collapsed after dams or barrages were built on rivers. Um, and this seems to have a number of impacts on populations. Uh, the first being um, the sort of when the water's kept back and then released later in the season. If the gurriel are downstream of the dam, that can lead to the flooding of nests. And similarly, when barrage gates are closed, that can lead the water to like back up behind the dam. Um, and then similarly, again, that can then flood nests on the upstream side. So this was definitely identified as a big issue in Nepal back in the 70s, it was one of the reasons they started collecting in the nests. Um, and also it can just, they can completely fragment populations. So they build a dam, you've got half your population on the north or you know the upstream side and half on the downstream side. Um, and that can just lead to the populations being too small to be viable. Um, and then the other major issue that we particularly have in Nepal is accidental bycatch. So gurriel, particularly with their very snaggly teeth that sort of sit out the sides of their mouths they can really easily get tangled in um gill nets so nets that are classically sort of set in the river to catch fish and made of artificial fibers and plastic so they're really really strong and either they catch smaller gurriel and drown them or people who set the nets kind of catch a gurriel in their net accidentally don't really know what to do with it but want to get their net back or they're frightened so they might kill it um or in the larger animals they often can break away but then if they've got the net stuck around their snout they can starve over time um so those are the kind of dams and barrages and fishing accidental uh, fishing pressure are kind of two major issues um and then some sort of emerging problems are especially sand mining so sand mining um for the construction industry is an absolutely massive extractive industry uh, throughout asia um and River sand is perfect for the construction for all the cities that we as humans love to live in. Um, and this is really impacting on rivers throughout Asia, including those that gurriel live in. And in some places, the whole bank where they would need to bask and lay their eggs are simply being mined away. Uh, and there's very little regulation to um, uh, deal with this. A lot is done illegally. There are sort of issues of sand mining mafias and human uh, human rights issues. Um, so. Yeah, that's kind of a big emerging issue um, at the moment. Um, but yeah, so gurriel are kind of sensitive to everything. They need these lovely bas uh, banks to bask on and lay their nests on. They need huge stretches of river to, to move between. They need numbers of fish to eat. So kind of any disruption to the river system um, kind of has a knock-on impact on gurriel. They're pretty, they're not very tough. <laughs> 
Uh, sound like a classic keystone species. Yeah, yeah, they are. Bless them. Not yeah. doing terribly well. So uh, you mentioned that since uh, 2006, they have seen a slight increase in uh, Garrow population. So there's, I guess, a hint of good news with that. Want to go a bit further yeah, than that? Yeah, I think it's definitely uh, more than a hint of good news. It's uh, something I'm really excited about. Um, so this is particularly, um, so during that time, um, the Gurriel Breeding Centre has been run by uh, Bev Bahada Kukka, who's my, my project advisor, who is a really committed um, conservationist and his team um, who uh, work on the um, sort of breeding centre there. And they've been monitoring uh, the nesting and um, sort of orchestrating the releases um, for a long time. And basically they've got the survival rates um, much higher than they were previously in the breeding centre, um, which means they can now end up releasing about 100 gurriel a year. Um, and so part of that increase is simply that they're releasing such a, a large number of gurriel that even if only 30 or 40% are surviving and staying in Nepal, that's sort of seeing this steady increase. Um, and what's also really exciting is that now some of those gurriel that were released around kind of 2006 onwards are reaching adult size um, and they seem to be nesting really well so those particularly those female gurriel that were from the center the vast majority of them particularly if they're released at a young age they seem to be growing up to adult size and then showing all the normal breeding behaviors and there are now in fact enough nests in Chitwan still not very many but just about enough that uh, they don't collect them all into the center anymore they leave them in the wild um, and we found that a uh, considerable number of sort of yearlings and juveniles um, that we're citing every year more and more so still we're still talking tiny numbers you know we're still talking only like 200 hatchlings in the wild every year but of those you know even if only 10 percent are um growing up to be adult gurriel that is inevitably leading to um an increase in the population and another sort of very important factor has been um that the kind of area of suitable river habitat for gurriel to use that's protected has been in increasing through community conservation initiatives, uh, particularly community-led conservation of forests and rivers. So these are small rivers that are outside of the national park itself, but communities have decided to protect them, uh, to use them for tourism or sustainable extraction. And so um, actually this year we found that the gurriel were nesting inside those community forests um, which is which is great and they're really nice we've got gurriel living with them all year round so there's also just been this kind of increase in suitable habitat which has had this again not positive knock-on effect on the population that's actually really great news here especially uh since they are such a unique species of crocodilian yeah uh, absolutely and yeah, yeah. sorry yeah for uh people that at home don't know that much about them you want want to go into details about how they're kind of different and separated from the other crocodilians? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, kind of looking at the kind of crocodilian family tree, you've got the alligators and caimans who are a related group. You then have the crocodiles, which contains a huge number of species found all over the world. Um, and then off on this other branch, you have the gharials. And there's actually only two species of gharial in this, this third group. There's the one I've been talking about, the gharial, which is also called the Indian gharial. Um, Gavialis gangeticus 
And then the other one is a Southeast Asian species, um, sometimes called the false scurriel, but now generally called the Thomastoma, which is also a really cool species. Um, and they have the two longest, thinnest skulls of, um, of any living crocodilian today. And especially the gurriel, the sort of one I work with, they have this incredibly long, thin uh, skull that's really specialised for catching fish and other aquatic prey. So unlike kind of you classically think about alligators and crocodiles as these predators that catch a lot of their prey at the side of the water, you know, drown small mammals or in the case of like Nile crocodiles, large mammals. Um, gurriel don't do that at all. They only pretty much only eat fish and then occasionally they'll grab a turtle or a crustacean or some river bugs and the very occasional duck. But they are really, really predominantly um, a fish eating species. And they're also the most aquatic crocodiles. So unlike other crocs, they can't sort of get their legs under their bodies and stand up and walk. Like you'll see in those, you know, like videos of alligators in Florida walking across the golf course. Um, not a hope of that for a gurriel. They literally can only shuffle like a turtle. So they're useless on land. They just kind of push themselves along, which means they really, really can't cross any distance at all on land. I think the furthest I've seen one from the river is like three or four meters. Um, and that was really surprising. We were like, why is it so far away from the water? Um, yeah, they're, uh, they're, which is one of the reasons they're so threatened because whereas like with other dams, you know, the muggers, the type of crocodile that live in the same river of gurriel, they just get up and walk around. Um, whereas a gurriel just sits at the bottom looking sad. Um, but yeah, so they're this, um, yeah, they're really, really sort of weird looking with this long thin skull and they're e evolutionarily unique um, because they're, yeah, only got this one other vaguely closely related croc species, but actually they're not that closely related at all. Um, and then just to make them a little bit even weirder, um, they have this sexual dimorphism so the males and females look different so not only do the males get absolutely huge they can get over six meters and weigh over a ton um, they grow when they start to mature at around four meters they start to grow this weird lump on the end of their nose called a gara and um, the word gara comes from the sanskrit word for a clay pot because it kind of looks like a badly made clay pot on their nose and as the male gets bigger and bigger this gara gets bigger and bigger as well um, and that's the name Gariel with the Gara. Um, and they use that, it seems to be used for acoustic communication. So it's used for making a noise called a pop, which is kind of a loud percussive noise that the males use for communicating. Um, so yeah, they're a pretty weird looking and weird acting croc. Yeah. And uh, their eyes are kind of different looking from other crocodilians as well. Yeah, they, yeah, they kind of look, bug-like i've yeah. always thought telescoped yeah um yeah absolutely yeah so uh girls have a unique uh reproductive and parenting behavior compared to other crocodilians right yeah they do so they um have this communal nesting behavior um where all the females lay their eggs in kind of nests in a single sandbank and then they have fairly coordinated uh, hatching events they tend to hatch within about a week of each other and all the babies come down from the nests after the females dig them up and form huge crashes so all the babies in an area will form a single crash um, that's guarded we found in nepal that they're primarily guarded by females um, but in the chumbal river in india um, the the dads also play a massive role. So these huge adult males and the females as well will guard crashes of, you know, up to over 2,000 hatchlings, um, which is incredible to see. Um, 
it kind of makes you really optimistic because you're looking at this huge, huge crash of these little tiny crocodiles. And you're like, oh, they're not going to be critically endangered for much longer. But there's a long way to go from being yeah. a tiny croc in a crash to being a, a three meter reproducing adult. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit of time and quite a few predators in between then and there. Sadly so. So um, you recently got some data, your first batch of data from your research. You mind uh, going into some detail about that, or? Yeah, for sure. So we've um, uh, the main sort of focus of our project in Nepal has been a radio telemetry study. Um, so we tagged twenty wild caught gharial, um, and we also tagged twenty five gharial released from captivity. And we've been monitoring these guys for three years now. Our last batteries have just kind of dropped out. Uh, to try and understand how gharial that live in the environment are, are moving and using that environment, uh, what the threats to them are, and if they're dying, why? And similarly, asking the same sort of questions, but focusing on those first two years after gharial are released, which um, has been shown in previous studies to seem to be a sort of a high-risk time for gharial just disappearing, um, and people weren't really sure what happened to them. Um, and what was quite interesting so sort of thinking first about the ones that have been released from captivity um, is we found that a small number of them are um, if they end up in this sort of main they're released on a small tributary and if they end up in this kind of main big glacier fed river called the Naraini, um, they by their first monsoon um, so during the monsoon the river level just increases phenomenally and what's previously quite a big river becomes absolutely giant river and we find that the gharials released from captivity that ended up in that river during their first monsoon just disappeared off down to india um and only one of them ever came back so it seems that this is a kind of a really important thing to consider with these release programs um particularly because we found that by the second monsoon not the same effect at all all those gharial that were in that river um stayed in the river even during the large floods so it seems to be that when you initially are releasing these crocs from captivity they perhaps don't have the same um, response to the environment and behaviors as you see in um in wild hatch gharial um so that was really interesting um and we also had huge numbers of them are sadly being killed um accidentally we think um in getting caught in these gill nets um they're technically illegal but they're still pretty widely used at night to avoid people getting caught using them and we found surprisingly high number of these small gharial are getting caught in them and drowning or slightly more of them are getting caught in them and people are killing those gharial in order to get the nets back um so those big problems but on the plus side um we found that all the large resident gharial that we we caught and tagged uh, very few of them died over the sort of study period um and we found some of them even ones that were released from captivity are still showing those same migratory behaviors that are seen in india so some of these females are making you know 150 kilometer journeys in the year to go from good feeding sites to good nesting sites whereas others are just staying put um we had one female who's not gone more than a mile in two and a half years she just she just stuck around she was it was a good area there was no reason to go anywhere else so she didn't um but in particular what's happening um there's 
really important for conservation is that during the monsoon, when the river levels rise, is the gurriel are going out into the small tributaries of the river and way outside of the national park, up into areas that are heavily agricultural and urban, um, where there's pretty much no natural habitat left. You know, they're in these little tiny rivers going through the middle of paddy fields. Um, and a lot of gurriel are going there, but what surprised us was a lot of adult gurriel are going there. It's kind of known that the smaller gurriel do occasionally go sort of on these monsoon trips out of the river channel, but we were surprised that lots of the big adults were doing the same. Um, so that's kind of a really important thing to think about for the future is, well, how do we protect them when they are in these agricultural areas? Um, so yeah, all really interesting kind of for just thinking about how gurriel behave but also for now thinking about well how do we protect them year round yeah yeah so you mentioned that at least some of the females would travel to like 120 kilometers a year um so would that be just to follow like food sources and moving between food sources and nesting grounds or is there any other potential reason why they do that yeah so it kind of it's interesting so we haven't um this sort of behavior, this migratory behavior was first seen by um, the Gurriel Ecology Project on the Chumbal River in India, which is a completely awesome research project um, that's been running over 10 years now. Um, and they're kind of one of our partner projects. And they um, they found through tagging Gurriel, I think they tagged their first Gurriel in 2008, that all their adult males and females in the lower part of the Chumbal are making really, really big journeys. And this seems to be because the really good feeding for adults is at the confluence of the Yamuna and Chumbal rivers. So during the monsoon, when there's this um, high uh, volume in the river and they've got this confluence, this seems to be the best place for fishing. So all the adults go here and spend the whole monsoon just eating all day. And then at the end of the monsoon, as the river level drops and uh, girls don't really eat very much in the winter, they do their breeding in the spring. So they kind of all go back up the river and those females and the males will go as far back as they need to go to find mates um, and suitable nesting sites. Um, and they will, yeah, just keep traveling until they find their kind of preferred um, preferred uh, male or female to mate with and um, the sort of ideal big high sand banks. Um, and we found slightly different sort of directions of behavior in Nepal because it's kind of quite a different river system. The Chumbal's mostly one big river channel, whereas uh, the rivers in Nepal are mostly kind of very braided lowland rivers. Um, but we found kind of the same thing that they're coming upstream, going quite far upstream, possibly because we're at the absolute sort of northern and altitude limit of where you get gurriel. So in the monsoon, when it's hot, they're going further upstream, catching fish, going to these like highly braided parts of the river to catch fish. And then some of them are then going all the way downstream in the um, across, uh, through the winter in time for breeding, um, breeding in the spring. Um, the females are also a bit limited in Nepal because there are currently only three adult males uh, in all of Chitwan. Um, so if they want to find a fellow, they've got to go quite a long distance. Yeah, must be nice to be a male gharial in Nepal. Oh, yeah. They're having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of sounds like they're almost like uh, the crocodilian equivalent of salmon when it comes to their uh, mating migrations almost. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They will. Yeah, make these really impressive journeys and, and kind of how and why they're navigating to those particular sites. Um, I guess a really interesting question. Um, so some 
um, I think the, the really amazing navigation abilities can be seen as saltwater crocodiles, which will travel like 900 kilometers. Um, so presumably how they're navigating and how gurriel are navigating might be quite similar. Um, I can't tell you how they do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Well, unlike salmon, at least they don't have to jump up waterfalls into a grizzly's mouth. So, oh yeah, so that's uh, well avoided. Um, yeah. I think yeah. Well, by the time you get to being an adult gharial, there's very very little that's going to try and eat them. Although we have had a report uh, in the '90s that a tiger killed an adult female gharial who was gravid at the time. Um, um, which so there is some someone always bigger than you until you're a big male gharial and then no one's bigger than you. Yeah. So you mentioned that male skips like uh, six meters or about 20 foot long, yeah. yet uh, they don't really pose that much of a threat to humans, correct? Yeah, so there's actually no recorded uh, incidences of a gurriel killing a human. There are a couple of cases of one um, sort of biting or striking a person, um, but generally it's been thought that that was either accidental, um, thinking maybe it was a fish, um, or or sort of protecting its babies but yeah they really don't pose a threat to people um in the way that other crocodilians do which is very nice when you're trying to conserve them because you don't have to contend with um ensuring that people are safe from a species you're reintroducing because everyone's pretty safe from a gurriel yeah. Um, yeah it's really impressive considering how long there's been large human populations coexisting along waterways gurriels live in yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, because the Ganges, where they still found today, is one of the most you know densely populated parts of the whole world. Um, so it's um, remarkable that there are still gurriel at all um, when there's like a really high human pressure. But uh, we find in Nepal, you know, people are really are really keen on on having gurriel in their rivers. Um, we've we kind of have generally found that when we've gone back and so as we go we've shared all our data and everything we found um with sort of local interest groups so most of the almost everyone on the team other than me is from the local area um and we kind of go back and share everything as we go with everyone about what the threats are what's happening where we're finding them and it's been really lovely to see how um different kind of community groups have responded so for example when we were concerned that there was a high amount of sort of pollution and litter in um, some of the areas where the gurriel were nesting. Um, one of the sort of local community forest groups organized to meet with the mayor and discuss how landfill was getting um, disposed of and why it was ending up in the river. And so people are, you know, people are really interested to make changes to keep the rivers they live alongside beautiful, but also suitable for species like the gurriel to live in. Um, so it's always, yeah, it's a really inspiring part of the world to, um, to live and work in when I'm based, I'm originally from the UK and I feel like people don't have that same um, sort of interest and tolerance of um, wildlife that we see in Nepal. Um, so yeah, I learn a lot from, from people. And uh, I just got to bring this up. You, you are a national geographic explorer, which is a pretty cool title to have. Yeah, it's, it is a very cool title. It makes me feel very exciting. Um, yeah, so National Geographic um, have very kindly one of our big project sponsors. Um, so they funded uh, the purchase of most of the uh, telemetry devices. Um, and um, I work very closely with 
uh, some National Geographic edge fellows. So uh, the gurriel is an edge species, which means it's evolutionarily distinct and globally endangered. So because the gurriel is this really unique species with few close living relatives on the tree of life, but also very close to extinction. It kind of gets ranked as one of these priority species for conservation. Um, so uh, in particular, I've worked very closely with Ranjana Butter, who's a Nepalese edge fellow, who's been looking at reproductive ecology and acoustic communication of um, um, of Gurriel in Chitwan, um, which has been a really fascinating project as well. So she's been kind of looking very closely at these amazing reproductive behaviours and how how those how and where those are occurring in the park and how we can focus kind of conservation on these key these key behaviours that are vital for the population to continue reproducing. Because um, they, they do this really weird um, like courtship dance. So the males go up to the females um, and she's got to choose to mate with him. So the male goes to a lot of efforts to try and get the female, um, to win the female over. And so they make this noise, this loud pop. Uh, they blow bubbles, they hiss, and they do this kind of body roll um, in the water to kind of shows off their back and then their tail and they go underneath blowing bubbles um which is incredibly cute um especially when you feel really sorry for them then because the male will do this all day and maybe one female will let him mate with her and the others are all just like not today mate uh yeah so uh hmm so where's the future outlook for garyals in Nepal looking like right now? Um, it, it's, it's kind of one of those things which is so, it's so difficult to to determine. On the one hand, I'm really optimistic because the population is increasing. Um, there's, you know, awesome initiatives being set up by community groups for conserving rivers and river species. Um, there's currently a, a crocodile conservation festival um, being organized. Um, by a friend of mine who's a very uh, young conservationist to um, uh, Siddhartha um, in order to sort of get this interest and recognition in gurriel and muggers among local communities um, and you know lots of other people trying to interest in doing projects and being involved in conservation um, and Nepal has an awesome record of incredibly successful conservation you know doubling tiger numbers um, increasing forest cover um, so on the one hand, like if they're going to be doing well anywhere, I'm optimistic about Gurriel in Nepal. But then the threats on rivers throughout South Asia are just absolutely huge. There's so much building of, you know, hydroelectric power, um, which is kind of disrupting the river, preventing fish migrations. Um, and also just like really intense levels of pollution, you know, further downstream in the Ganges system. Um, some areas are sort of ecologically dead because they are so polluted. And if, you know, countries have to be really careful to look further downstream and say, right, we, we, we actively have to avoid this happening here, because if you just kind of let, um, you know, cities develop without really focusing on clean water and sanitation, then that ends up polluting the rivers, which most importantly has a really negative impact on people who rely on those rivers. You know, people need clean water to survive. Yeah. Um, people directly take water from these rivers for washing and drinking so on the in the first instance keeping rivers flowing keeping rivers clean is vital um for people um and then of course next is also vital for wildlife including gurriel so yeah it's it's all and then there's the sort of uh who knows what's going to happen with climate change because 
most all of these rivers where garlic exist, you know, the the main parts of the river originally um, are sourced in the Himalayas, and those glaciers they come from are shrinking every year. Um, and although that's not going to be the majority of water in the river, the majority is going to come from rainwater. It's still this kind of an, un, an unknown thing that humans are impacting and that you have completely no control over. You know, Nepal is very concerned about climate change being on the roof of the world. You know, Everest in Nepal, it's, it's um, you know, so high and the impacts of climate change are being felt already. But it's a little country that has kind of no control over the, the much bigger countries that are driving the trends. So uh, uh, current range of gharials is nowhere near as wide as they once were back in the day, right? Yeah, sadly not. So they've um, completely disappeared from at least 94% of their previous range. So, um, and that's, that's, that's an optimistic um, percentage. Nice. Um, so they used to occur from uh, the Indus and Pakistan in the West, all the way through Northern India, Nepal, Bhutan, out to Bangladesh and Eastern India, possibly as far as Myanmar, throughout the Brahmaputra, Ganges and Indus basins. And they're now left in just 14 super isolated localities in India and Nepal, all on the Ganges. Um, and it's likely that a, a, a quite a high number of those kind of localities are just individuals that have washed downstream from higher uh, populations. There's only about six uh, populations that show recent reproduction and recruitment so yeah they're doing really badly um and of those sort of six reproducing populations only one is viable and self-sustaining and that's the in the chumbal river sanctuary in india um where there is most of the world population um in a single river um, so that cannot overstate how important that one river is for gurial conservation in general um so yeah it's so sad to think you you know if you can look back at reports from uh you know a hundred years ago and people comment on how the long snouted alligator is so numerous in the river that you know you can shoot 10 every 10 minutes you know this kind of um description of how many were in the river and now there's there's probably less than a thousand adults in the whole world um but i mean i'm optimistic in places where the river system is quite well protected you know in parts of um pakistan they may have gone extinct but there are parts of the river where you still find river dolphins um so it's not impossible they could be reintroduced successfully in the future and indeed there has been a successful reintroduction of gharial in somewhere called hastinapur in india where they went totally extinct and then they a wwf led project um has reintroduced them um successfully um and they're still not big enough to breed yet but it would be really awesome if they did um so yeah it's hopefully things will get better um and as long as yeah freshwater conservation is prioritized um they stand as good a chance as any freshwater species yeah so uh do you know of any like proposed projects to maybe reintroduce gharials to say the Indus River or anywhere else along the former um, range? So there have definitely been discussions about um, introducing them to various other parts of India. Um, I believe that um, Bhutan and Bangladesh have also talked about reintroducing them. Um, 
and I was actually on a phone call just earlier this morning with a, a early career conservationist in Pakistan who is discussing doing um, some sort of prelim preliminary field studies for identifying potential sites for reintroduction. Um, so, yeah, that's why I'm feeling very optimistic today. <laughs> oh, glad I caught you in a good mood. <laughs> to be honest, I'm always in a good mood when I get to talk about Guriel. Yeah, it puts me in a good mood too. <laughs> ah. Well, uh, any other thing you want to talk about? Oh, I'm trying to think. Exciting things about Guriel. Um, 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 I mean, endlessly. There's always endlessly exciting things to talk about about Guriel. Um, but I think we've probably covered. Um, most of the yeah most of the things about the project i can think of i'll probably think of something in like 20 minutes yeah. and be like oh i definitely should have mentioned that yeah um do you have any connection with the uh or did any work with the madras crocodile bank was there aerials before yeah so i um i haven't personally uh worked with the madras croc bank itself but it is a madras croc bank project the gurriel ecology project on the chumble who I've worked really closely with um, and who have helped and advised us kind of throughout the whole process. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, they're a totally awesome organization um, who've done, yeah, so much for sort of conservation research and yeah, being linked up to this Gurriel Ecology Project, um, which is, yeah, immensely cool. Um, and um, yeah, and just kind of researching this vitally important Chumble population. Um, so, it's basically one of the only sort of open free flowing rivers where in fact i think it's the only open free flowing river where gurriels still occur all the others have dams and barrages on it um whereas this is such an important population to study because it's as close as you can kind of get to a natural system whereas everywhere else where we're looking at there still being gurriel it's not a totally natural system you've got artificial reservoirs you've got barrages fragmenting the habitat um, whereas the chumble is, is completely open and it's in and of itself the sanctuary. So the sanctuary is for Guriel and it's for the river. Um, so it's designed with Guriel in mind and, and the, the sanctuary encompasses the whole river and both its banks. Whereas a kind of a problem, I think a lot of freshwater conservationists will talk about is if you have got a protected area, a river is often the boundary. So one bank is protected and one bank isn't. And so that can lead to a kind of a, a bit of conflict with trying to work out, well, um, to what extent is this river going to be protected? Is it going to be, you know, no take, no fishing? Um, how is it, those other resources going to be extracted? Um, and in Nepal, what we found in Chitwan is the primary sites where we have successful reproduction and where we have males year round are those small parts of the river where the national park is on both sides. Um, and that's not to say that the Guriel aren't totally able to go through areas with high densities of people. They'll travel through those areas very happily, but it seems that those totally protected sections of the river um, are particularly important. Um, which kind of, I guess, makes sense. Um, if you're going to be sensitive to disturbance, then it's 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 probably quite good to have a totally uh, protected section of the river. 
Uh, it just makes them really hard to get to. <laughs> we have to spend so much time going on little tiny canoes or walking and going downstream in a little tiny canoe and then walking like five hours back to try and get somewhere we can stay overnight. They're not, not a practical species to study. Um, and they just love to those areas because they're these kind of really remote areas that they really like to be in. It's also sort of the areas where you get dangerous wildlife like wild elephants, um, which you really don't want to have to spend time with wild elephants um so I'll take yeah. Your word for it. yeah don't i yeah we spend a lot of time running away when we see a wild elephant um <laughs> so yeah it's just like a nightmare um i mean it's wonderful it's it's absolutely this complete privilege to get to work alongside such incredible wildlife but it just does make everything really logistically challenging so and the babies hatch in like 40 degree heat at the like height of the pre-monsoon so it's really really hot and you've got to walk like four or five miles to try and just check if the babies are hatching um, and they all hatched late this year. So we have three weeks of going every morning and not even getting to see baby crocodiles. <laughs> I was not impressed. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a weird experience to go looking for the 20 foot crocodilian that won't harm you, but the big herbivores will definitely hurt you. Yeah, I know. It always really surprises people when they say, you know, because there's a, you know, a lot of tigers in the area. Um, and obviously tigers are very dangerous and, and, um, human tiger conflict is a, a big problem for people living alongside the national park but it's the elephants we're really scared of because you can't even yeah you just have to avoid them you can't just kind of moderate your behavior and be like right how does a tiger hunt right how can we avoid this or similarly for other crocs you can be like right which we just don't go to this bit of the bank of the river whereas with elephants it's just like they look so cute on paper <laughs> um, on paper on paper yeah that's yeah I love them lovely from a distance when I'm in a car. Good, good set of binoculars probably helps. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, so you mentioned uh, places and rivers that don't really see any like fish being drawn or anything like that being where gharials seem to prefer hanging out. Uh, do gharials and like native like fishermen and stuff like that have any sort of competition at all? Um not really. So a lot of the team we work with who are actively involved in gharial conservation are from the sort of um, local and indigenous fishing communities. Um, so lots of the people who do the gharial guarding, who notify the national park when they see gharial nests and um, are directly involved in protecting those those nests and those gharial are from the local fishing communities because they have a wonderful knowledge of the river because they've they've grown up on it fishing there um so um actually a lot of those people are directly involved in conservation um there can be some conflict with some of these communities wanting to use um certain types of fishing gear that are illegal um but we think that the primary issue is not the fishing communities who are very experienced and capable at using these types of nets and even in releasing gurriel from them if they accidentally catch them it's kind of people more casually doing a bit of fishing on the side at night you know young men going out fishing um leaving a net in overnight um that's kind of more likely to lead to these conflict events where gurriel gets caught and maybe killed um so yeah it's a tricky thing because um yeah people should particularly from fishing communities absolutely should have the right to fish in the rivers um and it's just a matter of kind of balancing that so people can continue to have the rights and abilities to fish and safely fish and um also 
and also have opportunities to take up other careers and livelihoods if they don't want to fish, which is often something that leads to people continuing in these professions um, is if they don't have any other opportunity. Um, but then at the same time, kind of balancing that with ensuring that there's not this additional threat um, to Guriel from people outside of fishing communities coming in and extracting fish, because that's when the sort of problems really start. Um, so, so, yeah, it's a really tricky thing to try and work out and how to deal with. Um, the kind of broader ZSL project I'm a part of has been uh, implementing community fish ponds um, in some of these communities to give an alternative both source of fish and protein um, and a more steady and safe form of uh, income uh, for communities that can sort of do fish farming now instead of taking the fish directly from the river. Um, so those kind of alternative livelihoods are one approach. Um, but there's kind of thinking in terms of worrying about people fishing more broadly rather than just accidentally catching the gurriel in the nets. Um, and we don't think that there's a major problem with kind of overfishing in the rivers. Um, however, some of the fishermen we work with have reported that they uh, believe that the fish numbers have been decreasing. Um, so, and when you see the fishing pressure in these rivers, like it's not super high compared to so many other parts of the world. So there, there's definitely a lot of research that needs to be done there to try and understand why these fish populations going down. Because if people are relying on them, gurriel are relying on them, we can't have them decreasing. And there's sort of a lot of concern about whether this is downstream pollution um, or kind of other forms of... Um, um sorry upstream pollution ending up in the rivers and why exactly it is that we might be seeing these kind of declining fish populations um or is it because you know the small tributary rivers that they rely on are perhaps being degraded in a way the big rivers aren't um so yeah more research on on fish in these areas also really important because we kind of got a lot of not quite answered questions <laughs> yeah uh reason i asked was I heard a while back that uh, gharials and uh, local fishermen actually target completely different species of fish. So there's like no, I guess, ecological competition. At least that's what I heard. I I don't know about anywhere else, but in 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 Nepal, um, I think everyone catches the same fish. So gharial is super super generalist, and okay. um, people will eat any fish that are tasty. Um, um, particularly, I think. Yeah, both quite like the bigger fish. Um, so, uh, but I think it's been seen in India that gharial will eat a lot of invasive tilapia, which is mm. really interesting. So potentially also playing uh, an important ecological role in removing that invasive species. And that's kind of been seen in a lot of different species. So um, there was a, a part of the Mobaya Foundation, uh, Philippines crocodile research. Um, they um, found that the Philippines crocodile were eating the invasive, I think it's called the golden apple snail, which is a, it's a really bad crop pest in the Philippines. And they found that these, these crocs were eating a lot of these snails. Um, and so, yeah, again, with the gharial eating tilapia, they're kind of these unexpected sort of ecological benefits of um, having crocs in systems. Um, which is, yeah, something that is really interesting trying to understand the role of crocodiles in their ecosystems. Um, because it is so, they're so tricky to study, spending most of the time underwater, you know, or doing things at night. Um, and it's like the question is, you know, are they performing the same role in river systems that like 
tigers or wolves are performing in as apex predators outside of them. Um, so, yeah, hopefully lots of interesting research going to happen in the future. Yeah, uh, kind of a neat parallel I noticed a little bit closer to home where I live. I live in uh, Ohio, and up in Lake Erie, we have our only endemic species of reptiles only found in our state is the uh, Lake Erie water snake. And we've actually found that uh, these snakes will sometimes up to 90% of their diet will consist of an invasive species of goby fish. That's really cool. Yeah, and the thing about those goby fish is they predominantly feed on uh, the spawn and fry of native fish species. So people have actually seen with the increase of the Lake Erie water snake population, they've actually seen a bounce back in the native fishery stocks. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Oh, yes. Reptile conservation for the win. Having all the positive knock-on effects. Yep. All right. Uh, anything else you want to talk about? or? Um, I think, yeah, that's probably uh, it's all my top top croc facts. Um, um, no, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been It's been really great to oh. get to share a bit about our project. Oh, thank you. It's been a blast. Yeah. All right. For sure. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Take care.